Voice of Fintech. Welcome to Voice of Fintech, a podcast mapping out the Swiss and global fintech scene, connecting fintech enthusiasts with startups, incubators, accelerators, business angels and VCs, and incumbents interested in partnerships. Voice of Fintech will help you navigate the fintech ecosystem. Here you can listen to the startup founder stories, what investors and incumbents are looking for when dealing with startups, and find out more about resources provided by incubators and accelerators. My name is Rudy Fallad and I'll be hosting this podcast. Hello and welcome to Voice of Fintech. Today we're going to talk to Colin and we're going to travel to Boston to talk about legal tech because contrary to popular belief, lawyers are now falling in love with technology and some of them more than others and Colin knows all about it. So I'm curious to find out more because whether you like it or not, if you're a fintech founder or any sort of founder, you're going to have to work with lawyers and maybe you are on a tight budget. Therefore, lawyers that are technically savvy and they can use technology to bill you less hours uh, may be useful to know. So welcome, Colin. How are you today? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Great stuff. So tell us, how did you get to do what you do today? Essentially, I got my first taste of technology when I was working as a paralegal for a law firm in New York prior to law school. That gave me my first taste of tech, and I just have been eager to learn more about it ever since and was frustrated by the fact that when I was in law school, there was very little talk of technology, and I wasn't happy with not knowing about how technology was impacting the practice of law. All right. So I guess that was a while ago, but I would suspect that you're still catching up on your sleep, right? Uh, Always, always. Look, these days, law practice is changing, right? But why do you think that lawyers and technology are becoming inseparable or are they? I would say that it is a slow process of becoming inseparable. But I think if nothing else, the rise of generative artificial intelligence has shown lawyers, that there is a lot of potential benefits of using technology, not the least of which is being more productive with their limited time and not having to do things that aren't bringing value to their teams or their clients over and over again, and instead relying on technology to do a lot of that work for them. So let's describe the legal tech system, because for some people, this is a bit oxymoron. Lawyers, they're all about talking and the paper. And now we're talking about legal tech. So how do people, processes, and technology work together today? So the way I look at it really is the way that my book is titled. It's an ecosystem of people, processes, and technology, because the way I look at it is technology are just tools and it's up to individual users to benefit from the use of those technologies. And then it's also up to the businesses themselves to be able to see how technology can be best put to use for different functions through their users and also through looking at the lens of, okay, we want to grow, we want to be more data-driven. How can technology help us get us there, whether it's through analytics, whether it's through automation, or whether it's through automated review of documents or all of those things. And so really, I think it's an ever-evolving relationship between the three, and that's why I call it an ecosystem, because all three really benefit and rely on one another and it's ever changing and without one you can't really have the others either and i think we've seen that in multiple different ways 
through time as technology has made further and further inroads with respect to um, society as a whole, industries, and now with the legal space. Okay. All right. So let's paint the picture, though. I mean, what kind of technology is being adopted by lawyers most quickly or most rapidly. Some people say it's all about chat GPT now, right? You can write the legal brief, you can write the memo, you can do a research, things like this. So what are the hottest technologies for the lawyers? So there's a variety of them. I think a lot of it is driven by the type of law practice you have. But in general, I would say that a lot of law practices are at the very least adopting practice management software like that offered by Clio to help them manage their matters, manage correspondence, and kind of handle the administrative tasks associated with managing different clients and their matters. And technology allows for that to be more seamless, allows that to be more organized, and allows for that to be done faster in a more data-driven way. Beyond that, I certainly think that there has been a rise, as we've seen covered in the news and elsewhere, a rise in the use of generative artificial intelligence for whether it's drafting documents, reviewing documents, or brainstorming new ideas or what have you. I think that it's important, though, to keep in mind that generative AI is so new that we're only at the tip of the iceberg with respect to its benefits as well as its power. That said, artificial intelligence as a whole has been uh, around for quite some time. It just hasn't been as accessible to the normal everyday person as now is the case with generative AI. And then the last thing I would say is that I think another technology that is being adopted more and more by um, lawyers and law firms and legal departments are tools that can help them not just manage matters, but also manage uh, workflows in terms of assigning work, keeping track of who's doing what task and what the status of those tasks are, are, and also following up in terms of, oh, this matter or this workflow that someone's taking too long on this. I want to see if, how, what we can do to speed it up. Let me get in touch with, it, with this person and see what I can do to follow up on in terms of expediting. Whereas in the past, it was, oh, who is this with? Is this with you? No, it's with this person. And then that person tells you, oh, no, it's with this other person. You spend all this time trying to figure out who last touched a document, which can be very time-consuming and unproductive. Right. So great that you mentioned Clio, the process management tool, uh, but let me follow up a little bit on generative AI because it's on everybody's mind, right? Some people say the open AI is, is popular with people because they can play around with it and it's nice uh, writing, but it's not that great when it comes to copyright. Microsoft is obviously uh, looking into it, but it's also not that great with uh, fact-checking. And obviously, you need to be 100% factually correct when you're a lawyer, right? So are there any more specific enterprise-grade solutions that leverage the same kind of technology, but they focus on the legal text and they learn on the legal text and the laws rather than Wikipedia? That's an excellent point. I think that in general, using generative AI is at best, it's going to give you a rough first draft of something, but shouldn't be relied on to give you completely factual information. And that's something I'm always aware of and always telling lawyers. I think in terms of something that is a little bit more enterprise ready, uh, there certainly are, I think, a number of companies that offer solutions based off of large language models, for example, Case Text and their co-counsel product, for example, that rely on laws and a more legal specific data set, and therefore more likely to provide you with a more factual, more accurate 
support and product when you ask it a question or ask it to do something for you. And that I think will continue to be the case going forward because of the fact that, to your point, that legal is very much a very facts-driven inner profession and laws, you know, are very specific and you have to really know what's applicable and what's not. And so I do think that there are, it's, it's incumbent upon companies that are providing legal services through technology to have their data sets be legal specific and not be so generic or Wikipedia common day generative AI tools as they exist outside of the enterprise. Let me follow up on one other thing. You said process management, you need to follow up with who worked on that document, things like this. But already years ago, lawyers worked with the red lines and things like this, right? So like uh, markup tools that you have in Word, anything exciting happening in that area? Can you use, let's say, text to audio to text, things like this, which you have in Microsoft Word, but can you really apply it in your legal work or to save you time, for example, maybe you want to review the draft one more time and any changes, but you are on a subway back home so you can listen to it rather than read it. Oh, Just absolutely. Just one made-up example. There's plenty of tools out there that can assist with that. One that comes to mind is called Zuva. It's an offshoot of Cure Systems, which helps with uh, contract review, automated contract review. So you're not reviewing contracts yourself. You can actually rely on it to do that work for you. Certainly contract management solutions, including the one made by my company, Malbec, offer that functionality as well in terms of reviewing contracts and or assisting with drafting or assisting with kind of finding problematic clauses and suggesting alternative language. There's a lot of tools out there that can assist with that. It's really all a matter of kind of what level of functionality you're looking for, whereas contract management solutions offer end-to-end contract management help in terms of reviewing, drafting, negotiating and tracking contracts, whereas you have other more specific tools like Zuba that are more focused on simply reviewing contracts or other types of documents. And then you have others that are more focused on perhaps actual drafting of an agreement or some other document. Gavel, for example, is a no-code solution that allows for automation of workflows and documents. There's really a plethora of tools out there. I think really that can be actually a challenge for many and that there tends to be too many choices sometimes and that people go by what their friends tell them they're using, whereas it's perhaps a better idea to not just rely on suggestions from friends, but really know what your needs are and use that understanding to drive and inform your search and evaluation of potential tools. Yeah, I guess that's a nice segue to what I was going to ask next. What are the potential, say, three biggest mistakes when you're evaluating these tools? Sure. I think the first mistake is assuming that just because your friend suggests a tool, that's the best tool for you. I don't, which is not to say to dismiss your friend's suggestion, but also take it with a grain of salt because their needs, their business likely isn't exactly the same as yours. So that's one mistake. I think the other is, I think a second one rather is assuming that a certain solution is going to solve all of your problems. Technology is not a panacea. It can't solve all problems. It may not even be the solution you need, which goes to my third point, which is not fully understanding the problem that you're trying to solve when evaluating technology. It's super, super important to have a very clear understanding of exactly what problem you're trying to solve and not just what the problem is, but what an ideal solution would look like and use those two pieces of information to inform your evaluation of a potential tech tool. And if if I may be so bold, I would add a fourth mistake, which is not involving your users in the evaluation and process of tools. 
because ultimately, while you may be a decision maker, it's not entirely up to you as to what tool is going to be used by whomever. You really want your users involved because otherwise you may end up with a situation where you have a tool you personally like, but you spend all this money implementing it, buying it, what have you, and it doesn't get used because your users weren't part of the process and they felt it wasn't their decision and they don't feel inclined to use this tool because it doesn't work for them. Absolutely. So involve users in testing and choosing the right tool. I think that's a, that's the right message. Following up on this, obviously you have different, different levels of hierarchy in law firms or even in-house counsel, etc. Should every lawyer think about technology in the legal profession or is this a reserve for the working bees? So I, that's an interesting question. I would argue that any lawyer these days that wants to be seen as resourceful and needed and wanted should at least have a basic understanding of technology, not necessarily meaning that they need to be t- completely a coder or some tech genius, but they certainly need to be aware of relevant technologies that may help them be a better lawyer and be a better lawyer for their specific clients. And I think that's thought, that view is reinforced by the fact that at least in the U.S., Over 30 states at this point have what's called a duty of tech competency, which requires them ethically to understand the risks and benefits of relevant technology for their practice. And that's really in place to emphasize the point that we live in a tech-enabled world. And really to be an ethical and productive lawyer, you need to be aware of not just what has been used and done in the past, but also what's being done now to help serve and protect your clients. And that includes technology. Oh, wow. I think that's amazing. I wasn't aware of that. So if you're an old-fashioned type of lawyer, you come to the office and you dictate your emails and ask somebody else to send them, and otherwise you don't touch a computer, you might be disbarred or or what? You wouldn't be disbarred, but I certainly think that at the very least, that would be an unproductive use of your time and also borderline on potentially not obeying that, um, that duty that you have. Uh, because again, it goes back to simply understanding technology and seeing if it could be of benefit to you. Because what would, what would be in violation would be if you are aware of a tech that could be helping your client and you don't use it, but you're aware of it, that potentially could be a violation. Right. Or let's say because you don't use it, it takes you 10 times longer, you're overcharging them. Right. Also true. Okay. All right. So... We talked about the open AI with ChatGPT, etc., but you correctly pointed out that AI has been here for decades before, right? Obviously, there were some times when the AI wasn't doing so great, and we call it AI winters, but ideally, we will not see them anymore. But it's a new technology when it comes to language models, etc., but what was here also before was automation, right? So... How do you see the impact of AI overall? And we're not talking only about generative AI, but traditional AI, so to speak. How do you see the impact of AI on the legal profession going forward? I think at the very least, it's going to make the profession ever more data-driven and more keenly aware of the fact that data is important and it's valuable, but its value comes from the type of data you have and how you use it. Uh, Because as, as we all know, artificial intelligence, its lifeblood is data. And so if you feed it bad data, it's going to give you a bad result uh, or potentially give you a biased result that you may not be very helpful for you. So I certainly think that we're going to see an increased emphasis on the profession being data driven, making better use of analytics and making better use of automation as well 
to automate sort of repetitive time-consuming tasks, whether it be creating a document, reviewing something, um, perhaps looking at a brief and evaluating its merits for future litigation or an ongoing litigation, things along those lines. And so I, I do think that if nothing else, artificial intelligence has in the past and continues to really put a spotlight on how we're using data, how we're collecting data, how we're understanding data. And that also raises data privacy issues with respect to how we're protecting people's data amidst all this usage of data from various sources. I have a follow-up question for you. Let's say using an example of an M&A process where you hire the lawyers, right? So I'm thinking that Obviously, when you are a seller, you're disclosing information, you don't want to disclose everything, you don't want to disclose everything, especially at the beginning of the process, because whether you have an NDA or not, you know that only one bidder will end up buying the business, right? You limit the information to some degree, but I think maybe the other limit in the good old days was the capacity on the other side. So you could say that, look, you don't need to give you all these documents because anyway, we need to wrap this up in four weeks. So please focus on what moves the needle. But as you said, if the data is really the prerequisite for AI to be successful, now we could say we don't have a human limit on the other side, right? So give us access to all of the data here. We'll unleash our algorithms uh, on this instead of, instead of our associates in the, in the past, and we'll find out what's going on. So would that be going too far in legal tech, for example? I certainly think we're at the point now where artificial intelligence is, because it's created by humans and humans themselves are prone to mistakes and imperfect, I think we can't expect artificial intelligence to be perfect either. And so I think that continues to necessitate a need for humans to be reviewing data and be assisting and providing quality control over review and use of data. And so because of that, I certainly think that companies that use artificial intelligence tools need to be open and transparent about who can see what data and for what purposes and for how long and, and so on and so forth. And that, I think, largely drives privacy laws that exist in many ways, like, for example, GDPR or other rules, because there needs to be some accountability for humans reviewing data and also some transparency about why certain humans need to look at this data and for what purpose. And I think that if it's put in the context of we need to make sure that our algorithm isn't providing erroneous results to you or providing an incorrect result that could hurt your client or what have you, I think that clarity provides a little bit of comfort, uh, but at the same time demands a level of respect and enhanced security to protect the uh, inherent value of the data and also to ensure that you don't provide an opportunity for bad actors to abuse their privileges or otherwise hack into places where such data is stored. So the original principle need to know basis still applies just because you can feed more information to the other side. It doesn't mean it's necessary or desirable, right? Absolutely. All right. Understood. Now, when people talk about legal technology, uh, there are all kinds of myths that you are debunking in your book. So can you tell us more about this? What kind of myths are you talking about there and why they are myths and not the truths? Sure. One of the biggest myths I was when I mentioned earlier, which is that technology, some may view as a panacea and that it's going to fix all of your problems. And that is just not the case. And the reason for why that isn't the case is because oftentimes you may see a problem 
as something that can be solved by just fixing one element of a process or by introducing something that can review something and provide you with an output quicker or faster. But as I said before, technology is not invaluable because it's made by humans. Humans are imperfect, technology is imperfect. And so therefore, the solution you may get from technology may not necessarily be exactly what you need or may not solve completely your problem. In addition, the problem you have may not even be one that can be solved by technology because it may be one that may pertain to a cultural issue or maybe people just simply not understanding what they need to be doing each day due to a lack of clarity around their job and responsibilities. Technology can't necessarily solve that, but humans can and better education can. So that's one, one myth. Another myth that I mentioned in the book is the fact that technology really is here as another set of tools to help you. It's really not necessarily just something that is here to take over everything that you do. It's really to be your right-hand man, so to speak, and really assist you with being a more productive, efficient, and more value-driven individual as a professional. And I think that's important, an important perspective to have because oftentimes technology is seen as, as something that just is taking over everything and leaving humans out of the loop. And that's really not not the case. We're not, you know, at the point where technology is simply taking over everything that someone does every day. We are at the point, however, where technology is necess- is changing in some ways what it means, for example, to be a lawyer, be a legal professional, or what it means to be doing a certain job, because there may be tasks as part of that job that are better done by technology, which means that you now have time that you can spend on other things that perhaps will be more valuable to your business that otherwise had to be done by you because technology wasn't there to do it for you. So that's another myth. And then the third one, a third myth that I would mention is that technology is more than just artificial intelligence. A lot of people tend to think that technology is just AI when it's really much more than that. To my earlier point that AI has been around for quite some time. So has technology been around for quite some time. It's just evolved very quickly. And accordingly, some of the newest technology that exists tend to outshine what has done before, such as automation or some of these no-code solutions. And I think it's important to keep in mind that all technologies make up a broader world that interplay with humans. And so it's important to see context and not take too narrow a view of technology isolated from other things. All right. So you also mentioned that the technology is developing quite quickly. And uh, it's developed by people and people have biases of their own. And therefore, sometimes, for example, when you are creating a new algorithm, these biases can get into the algorithm or because the algorithm is looking at the data that is biased, this is cemented going forward. So what are the key steps to develop these innovative legal products or legal, legal services, legal tech services the right way? Do you have any examples of real world lessons that successful founders and developers of these products have uh, gone through? Sure. I remember actually a number of years ago, I was part of a team developing a proprietary proprietary in-house contract management solution. It was fairly bare bones. But as part of that development process, we had assumed that the best way to sort of develop the workflow for managing these contracts and reviewing them was a certain way. But the problem was we had assumed that based off of our knowledge, but hadn't consulted with other users who were going to be 
using the solution we were developing. And that was a problem because as we went along, we saw that the solution met our expectations and worked for us. It didn't work for other user groups that were important and were we were intending the solution to be used by. And so I think that points to something that's really important when you're developing a technology solution, or really any product at all, which is really keeping your users front and center and top of mind and getting their feedback, providing them perhaps a few select potential users with an access to an early prototype so that they can see what you're building and provide feedback in terms of whether it works or whether it doesn't work as they see fit. And hopefully you'll have a variety of perspectives that you've gathered to then inform your further development process as you move along forward. And I also think that's quite important as well when you are perhaps developing an artificial intelligence solution, because you want to keep in mind the data you're using to train that solution. And that data, may you may not necessarily be aware of it because you have that bias yourself, which is why it's important to bring other perspectives to bear on the data so that it can tell you whether they see a bias there or not. And that also points to why I think developing any product should be a multidisciplinary process, bringing different experiences, different backgrounds, different perspectives, because we all have different lived experiences that we bring to bear every day. And I think we all benefit from sharing those experiences with one another, particularly when we're developing a new product. Absolutely. So how do you prepare students for the legal practice of the 21st century? No disrespect. And it sounds a bit biased, of course, but I do remember a friend of mine who was a lawyer turned banker. And when we had training in the investment bank, the trainer asked him a question and he says, do, do you want to tell us a solution of this and this financial problem? And he said, not really. I'm not very good with numbers. <laughs> the trainer told him, like, I hope you didn't say that in an interview. So my point is, how do you prepare students to embrace technology, even though maybe they are more in line with using words in their life than math? Sure. I think it starts with introducing them early in, in law school, perhaps before, but certainly in law school, to the basic technologies that exist. And yes, certainly understanding Microsoft Word and Office tools, but also understanding other tools other types of tools that exist like Clio or other ones, not necessarily with the intent of trying to get them to be proficient in use of those tools, but merely to try to drive awareness that these tools exist and they can help you and here's how. I also think that sometimes it helps experiment with different tools, particularly ones that allow you to build basic apps without using any code at all or basic automations without any code. I think that also can be very helpful. And if I may be so bold, I think that my recent book also can help introduce law students to the world of legal tech through a thematic overview, introducing them to not just my experience, but the experiences of others who have experienced developing legal tech or using it. Because I often think that the way, best way to learn about something is two ways. One, through building something yourself, but also two, through hearing the stories of others who have been through the process themselves and what lessons they have learned. Because I think it's important for law students to understand that the world, you know, is a dynamic, ever-changing place and law does not operate in a vacuum. And therefore, it's important for people to understand that the law itself and people who are in the legal profession 
operate in a world where things can change very quickly and it's important to be dynamic. And that is very much reflected in how technology has operated and continues to operate. Absolutely. Great stuff. Now, two easy questions before we wrap up. First of all, tell us where we find your book. My book is entitled The Legal Tech Ecosystem, and it is available on Amazon, and it's available via Kindle, softcover, as well as hardcover. So look for Legal Tech Ecosystem on Amazon and your favorite booksellers. You're going to find it there. Now, any other books apart from yours that influence you that you could talk about? Absolutely. I think probably one of the most foremost books that influenced me was Tomorrow's Lawyers by Richard Susskind. It really was a very broad and engaging introduction to the world of technology and its relationship with the law. That book is now it's in third edition. And I actually mentioned it in a post on LinkedIn today. Richard Susskind has been long outspoken on the role of tech within the practice of law and the business of law. And he is one of the first people who inspired me to learn more about legal tech. Wonderful. Thank you so much. And good luck to you, Colin, and uh, all the lawyers out there that are embracing technology and therefore helping their clients, such as founders or fintech founders specifically. So thanks so much and uh, all the best. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to Voice of Fintech podcast. If you haven't already, check out also voiceoffintech.com, where you will find all the episodes and additional resources related to the podcast. You can also subscribe to Voice of Fintech on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or any other podcast app that you like. If you have any suggestions on the topics or guests, or how to make this podcast better for you, please email us at info at voiceoffintech.com. Happy to hear from you. Thank you.